Brothers and sisters, it's a joy to be gathered here with you. One of our guests said, the weather is working against us today. Whether it's raining or snowing or sunny, it's, the weather's always working against us. I'm glad you made the good choice to come and hear the beautiful words from Father Tim. We're going to stand up and say a prayer, and then David is going to introduce, introduce Father Tim. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Oh, heavenly today. It is a, a joy for me to introduce Father Tim to you. He gave me a few highlights that I should cover in uh, his introduction. I think, if I remember correctly, the first one is he's the son of an astronaut, right? <laughs> Won the Nobel Prize at five years old um, and is in line to be the next patriarch of Romania, I think. So, if I got that right. <laughs> These introductions are oftentimes ridiculously over the top in all of the amazing things that the speaker has done, and Father Tim is not short in those. But the one thing that I wanted to mention, and the best thing for me that I can mention, is that Father Tim uh, was our parish priest when we entered the Orthodox Church, and he was instrumental in our family um, discovering Orthodoxy and uh, being received into the Church and us receiving the Church. Um, and that has been a wonderful 
beautiful gift. He and his family moved to Duluth, Minnesota the same year that my family moved. Um, I was a Baptist pastor at the time, and we both were going to our respective churches uh, almost at the same time. And... Um, got to know each other through uh, an inter-Christian dialogue group where he and I and one other mutual friend were kind of the token conservatives or traditionalists in the group and uh, kind of bonded and got to know each other and uh, both love soccer tremendously and uh, although he's the only one that started his own club that is very successful now which is a, a nice side bit. But he is a, a good friend and he is a, a very faithful man and uh, a very good priest and so I'm pleased to have him here to share with us. So Father Tim please come. Thank you, Father Noah. Thank you uh, to my dear, dear friend, uh, David, though it's an adjustment for me to call him David. I'm still Jeff uh, to me. And it's wonderful to be with you. It was especially wonderful to pray the salutations to the Theotokos with you last night. The church is gorgeous. The people are wonderful, and it's... <clears throat> It's a great joy uh, to be here. I, um, uh, everything is true of what he told you, except that, you know, I'm not the son of an astronaut or anything else. Uh, but um, the one thing that is very true is that um, we became very dear friends. We became very very, very good friends, and we became good friends as families, and we miss, I miss him, them, we miss them very, very much. So I don't like you people. <laughs> I blame him. <laughs> but very gracious, <clears throat> very gracious of... Um, Father, Father Noah to extend the invitation and actually a joy to be here to see the milieu where they, they landed. And indeed, it is a fruitful place. It is a, a place where the, where the Lord God moves and it's easy to observe, it's easy to see, to feel. And it is also wonderful to see, to see that in them. Thankfully, uh, our parish and our family uh, and I uh, will be gaining one Hyatt back because he's coming for college back to Duluth. So Noah, Noah is coming back with me. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are three lectures today. And uh, a couple of months ago, maybe a bit longer already, a couple of months ago for sure, we. <clears throat> Father Noah and I spoke about um, about the day today and what what I should prepare and uh, we're in the midst of Lent and we are um, um, we are benefiting from from the richness of the the holy and great land and I'm sorry I I'm gonna get rid of that and keep this here so I can at least see my time. 
Um, and um, we, we have three different sessions, three different lectures. Um, they, um, they're sort of entitled um, Exile and um, Journey, the second one, and Destination. But each one is uh, really much more than the word. And they are, uh, they are uh, to be um, seen as a progression. I have prepared them specifically as a progression. Um, they can stand alone, so they, they do stand alone to a great extent, particularly the, the, latter, the latter two. <clears throat> but um, but um, I've prepared them so they, so they go into one another. Additionally, Father Noah wanted, um, wanted me to kind of weave in um, a little bit of the story of my family as a microcosm, of, uh, as, a, as one little example of life in the church to some extent. And I, um, I've spoken about that before. It has some interesting aspects. It really has a lot of banalities as well. And oftentimes, we people of 21st century North America are great lovers of the extravagant. We tend to be very easily impressed by something that's easily Hollywoodized. Um, I don't like that. In fact, I, I try to stay away from that because it's so easy to just live from one glory to the next when in fact a life of salvation is really made up of steadfastness in the normalcies of life. So um, somewhat, I'm somewhat hesitant to, to spend too much time. But I want to give you a little bit of an introduction of me at the beginning. Uh, the first, the first uh, session is not as intense. The second one has a lot of pieces of information, so I'm going to try to I'm going to try to keep a good pace through that one, and then the last one is a little bit more meat to digest. And of course, by this point, everybody wants to eat meat anyhow. So um, I'll um, we'll, we'll try to spend more attention on the second and third sessions. <clears throat> but since the first session isn't as as intense, I wanted to take a little bit of a little bit of time to give you a bit of an introduction as to who I am and uh, what I'm about. It gives you a better chance to get to know me. And uh, we'll also have some questions at the end, and you can ask me anything you'd like. I may choose not to answer, but we'll, uh, we'll get started. So um, I'm Father Timothy Sass. Um, as, you, as you've heard, I am married. My wife, uh, Gabriela, is also Romanian, uh, as am I. We have four daughters, Andrea, Cassiana, Theodora, and Sophia. We live in Duluth, Minnesota, where I serve at 12 Holy Apostles Church as a priest. I've been there since September of 2004, so it's a bit of time now. I've been a priest, um, it'll be 20 years Transfiguration this year, so uh, almost 20 years in the priesthood. And um, 
a little bit of who I am. I love the worship of the church. I really do love the worship. We uh, grew up in the family of a priest. My, uh, um, my mom and dad, both very faithful families of their own, and my dad is a priest, and grown up in, uh, in that family. Only when I was a mid-teen did I actually begin to develop a love for the worship. And I spent a lot of time studying it, a lot of time studying it. And um, I still love it, though I feel rather differently about it now than I did when I was younger. In addition to that, I like reading, and I like reading a lot of, a lot of different things. I like music, though I was speaking earlier with Bob and Noah over breakfast that uh, I, I really wish I had learned some instruments. And my parents really tried. They tried, but they wasted their money on me and their patience on me because all I wanted at the time was a round ball to chase. You know, and that's, that's all I could think of as a teenager. And um, I also like sports a lot. You've probably heard that. I, I uh, soccer. Uh, of course, it's called football, but I'll be nice to you people. Uh, soccer is my favorite sport. I still, I still like to follow it, and I, I pretend to play every once in a while because it's really just pretend at this point. Uh, <clears throat> but. Um, I, uh, other, I like other sports too, and I also like cycling, riding my bicycle, which is something I like to do alone. And I live in a fantastic place for that. Northern Minnesota is absolutely amazing. From my house, they know where, where we live. I literally get on, onto Lake Superior. I shouldn't say literally, because that'd be riding on water, and I don't do that. But, you know, right by, the, by Lake Superior. and. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a, a time of peace and um, a different type of small C communion. So, uh, but aside from that, you know, I'm lucky to have been born in a faithful Orthodox Christian family. My, as you've heard, my dad's a priest, but even as outside of that, my dad, uh, his family were very faithful people um, from Northern Transylvania. Um, prior to communism, having been rather rich, rather rich landowners. Um, they became owners of great lands, primarily because back in the latter part of the 1800s, some of their family members back then during the Austro-Hungarian Empire fled and ended up in the U.S. And, um, in fact, yeah, my dad has a lot of first cousins who were born in, in the U.S., don't speak a word of Romanian. But they were in the U.S., and then some of the family members during the Great Depression, they just took their money, whatever money they had, and they went, they went back to Romania, because, of course, Romania at the time was actually doing rather well during the two world wars. And they went back to their part of the country, northern, northern Transylvania there, and uh, they did very well. Of course, communism came. And everything changed. Everything changed. Um, <clears throat> my uh, my uh, dad went to the theological school, a rather prominent theological school in the city of uh, Sibiu. 
And then uh, he, he was an orphan, uh, sad, some sad history there, but he, he uh, anyhow. And then uh, during one of his vacations, he went to cross the Carpathians to go to Moldavia with a, with a colleague of his. And uh, on that trip, he met, uh, he met uh, my mom. And basically, kind of, they decided to get married very, very rapidly, and uh, much to the surprise of my grandparents, my mom's parents, and uh, they they raised us, I think, very, very well. Um, faith, a lot of we observed a lot of faith in them. We observed a great deal of faith in them growing up, even though they did not enforce hardly any of it. Hardly any of it. We, we did, were not expected to fast. Um, we went to church as little kids, but as we grew up, we were not expected to, um, we were not forced to go to church. The only thing that we did do every single day is family prayer. When we got home from school and whatnot, we prayed together. We all knelt down and prayed together and read, uh, read a little passage from the scriptures and a little passage from the Psalms. And we read the Psalms over and over again. We, we would just never stop. In fact, to this day, although all of my education is in English, it's easier to think of the Psalms in Romanian. I don't use Romanian for hardly anything, but it's easier even now, 30 years later, to think of the Psalms in Romanian than it is in, in English. And that was, that was really a great richness. Uh, thank God um, we, we, remained, we remained in the faith. My mom's side, very, very active family in, in the church and suffered greatly. My grandfather, some of you might have heard of Father Roman Braga, the famous Romanian monastic from Dormition Monastery. My grandfather was with him at the canal. And um, a very, very devout family, my, my mother's family. And there's lots of priests and monastics on that side. And just, just a glorious richness that I'm not deserving of. But they were involved in what was called the Lord's Army. Uh, a very, very powerful movement of Orthodox Christians that began in the church prior to the Second World War as a way to live a more intentional life in the church. It was not outside of the Orthodox Church, and it wasn't really doing a lot of different things, but they, they made a covenant about living much more intensely so. And my parents were both in that movement, and they grew in that movement themselves. And um, life just blossomed. As a little kid, all I knew was that we, I was a kid and I liked football, soccer, and uh, I had four younger siblings. I'm the oldest of five. And my dad was a rather well-known priest in the second largest city in the country at the time, Timisoara. 
in the southwestern Romania. And uh, we, um, as I got to be older, we, I started to notice and to learn that things weren't exactly easy. Weren't exactly easy. But God was present in everything that my, my parents tried to do. And like I said, even though my, my mom and dad were not very rigid about forcing us into the faith, I grew up in a very military-style type of family. With my dad, if you were not 15 minutes early, you were late. There was no such thing as not doing your bed or not cleaning your room. And if you didn't, you felt it. <laughs> and I felt it a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, it, was a, it was an amazing life. If only I could, uh, if only I could offer the same type of love and, and ultimate sacrifice as my parents did. So um, now, Let's move into further into the presentation itself. Exile was the name of it all. So I'd like to give you an understanding of the, um, of the church as it was regarded in communism during communist Romania. And actually, you have wonderful parishioners that have experienced that themselves. Though we were young back then. <laughs> Um, my parents fled Romania during communism. I was only 14 years old. And uh, I, so I, I do have memories of things happening. The understanding, the more complete understanding came later, without a doubt. But essentially, the government wanted to destroy the church. But they didn't want to destroy the church so much because they cared if a particular institution existed or not, rather because the misguided mentality was that the state should be supreme, should reign supreme over people as the ultimate authority. The state, right? So frankly, they wanted their own institution which was void of God. Now the pretense, the pretext, and pay attention to this because we're seeing it even in our own country now. The pretext is always that that equalizes everyone, right? It becomes fair. Of course, it's a pretext for a reason. I'm calling it so because it's actually a lie. It is a great lie. Because when we do not have God as the ultimate standard, frankly, what happens, it becomes just a religion of ego. Okay? It becomes the promotion of one or a small group of people, which means that there isn't a standard, because you and I can never be a standard, and one group of people can never be a standard, at least not in Christian mentality. For us, we have but one standard. He is one person. His name is Jesus Christ. So this is how the church was regarded. It was regarded as competition, and it had to be destroyed because it did not provide for the opportunity for man to elevate himself. 
<clears throat> now, the communists actually in Romania permitted church services to take place. Ch the church did not go completely ex extinct as it did almost in Albania, for example. And it was not, the churches were not destroyed at the same rate as they were, for example, in Russia or in, so in the Soviet Union. And I believe that was the case primarily because the Romanian people leading up to those terrible times of communism were so enmeshed in their daily lives with the church, then it would, it would not have worked for them to simply destroy all the churches. And I believe that is a bit of a testament to the faith of those people. Not to their credit, but just a bit of a testament. So, church services were permitted as a form of cultural expression, but there were major limitations. And you might not think it is limitations, but there are major limitations. For example, there was no Sunday school. Kathleen, Gabi, do you remember going to Sunday school? There was no Sunday school. There was no catechetical school. No way to educate the people. Did you know that there, actually there was no preaching? Sermons were not allowed. You were allowed to do the services, the music, the petitions. You were allowed to read from the scripture all by way of cultural expression. You could make your koliva and your braided breads for all that kind of stuff, but you couldn't preach. And there was actually in the laws of the government, there was laws that said that a, if a priest preaches, he could be imprisoned. Now, priests did preach, and some of them quite forcefully and without hesitation. <clears throat> Here's what else was not allowed. No pastoral care. Think about that. Imagine, imagine that you are burdened on your heart and you're not allowed to go to speak with him. Because he can't speak with you. He can't counsel you in the faith because he could go to prison and his wife and kids could be left. That was actually part of the, part of the rules. Now priests did counsel. Thank the good Lord. <clears throat> and there was no evangelism. If we had gathered, if this took place in communist Romania, by law, there were actual laws, that each of you would go to prison, to jail, for th minimum three days. And you would have to sign an affidavit by which you would agree that you were trying to usurp the authority of the state. Gatherings like this would take place in people's homes, would take place in hiding. And when they were found out, oftentimes the organizers were persecuted very severely. Were persecuted very severely. What was the persecution? At first it would begin with warnings. Then it would move into some restrictions, especially of jobs. 
my mother was a teacher, uh, a high school math and physics teacher, but when my father was ordained, they would not allow her to continue to be a teacher because she was accused of indoctrinating her students. There were other fear-instilling tactics of all sorts, and then it would move on to beatings and imprisonment even. And many families experienced that, mine also. <clears throat> now, after many years of such, such things and a couple of attempts, my parents were able to flee. They fled together. Um, and um, then uh, about seven months later, we, the five children, me being the oldest, 14, uh, we joined them in Sweden, where, where we lived for a while, and that was a major change major change. And then we moved to Canada, which is kind of what became home, being that my formative years were there. <clears throat> and uh, this whole process is often called exile by many Romanians and many other people who fled communist countries. They call it an exile. Now, if you look at the definition of the word exile in the dictionary, it's defined as expulsion from, from one's own country by authoritative decree. Now, there was no authoritative decree that said to, you know, one priest, Aurel Sass, you got to leave the country. Obviously, that wasn't the case. Quite to the contrary, the communists did not want people to leave the country. They were essentially kept in a prison-like system in the entire country. So this was not a technical exile. But a lot of people refer to it as exile precisely because they left because they had to. Because they couldn't take it anymore. Because their home was no longer home. So now, let's try to get an understanding as to this type of exile as a word that encompasses more. An exile is essentially an experience of leaving your f native homeland. And this is experienced as a loss, a loss of the known life, a loss of the known world around you. But it's not just that. It's a loss of identity. It really is a loss of identity itself. Figuring out a new identity in a new world, in a new place. And it's a loss of understanding of self. My goodness. So many of us try to find ourselves, imagine actually having a good feeling of self and losing it. Understanding new aspects of the self because an experience, a transition like that, actually forces you to really look at different aspects of, of the self. Sorry, I'm still trying to figure out how to use it. And then, for people like us, 
who left because of religious persecution primarily, it can be a loss of faith. It can be a loss of God, especially trying to re-find God and to recognize Him yet again as the same God, but with a new self and a new identity and in a new world. This is a traumatic experience, my dear friends. So in looking at this understanding of exile, I want to take us a little bit to the people of God in Egypt. First of all, how did the people of God get to Egypt to begin with? Because it wasn't their own place, it wasn't their home. I won't go through the whole story, but essentially it starts with Jacob, who is renamed Israel, right? He becomes God's people. <laughs> and he has children, many children, and he has one that he kind of favors. His name is Joseph. And he likes him so much that he gets him an extra article of clothing. Right? What's the big deal about that anyhow? I mean, my kids have so many clothes, it drives me nuts. And I live with five women, keep that in mind. Okay? Just as a brief side note here. Of course, what Joseph received was not just an extra coat. He received special attention. He received a favoring over others. But he received a favoring over his equals. That's where the struggle came in. We're all favored in different ways, right? We all have different advantages and disadvantages. So the fact that we have different scenarios that define our lives shouldn't be a problem, right? Some of us are more athletic than others. Others are more inclined musically. Others are more inclined artistically. If we're gonna expect everybody to be equal, we're going to all be equally stupid. So that's not the point here. The point is that he was favored over everything that made them equal, right? Joseph was favored over his brothers as a son. There's a reason why that was the case. Neither Jacob, Israel, or Joseph, or the other 11 understood it, <clears throat> but there was a reason for that. And he was favored not because he was equal as a son, but he was favored for a different responsibility and task that he gained only later. Now, the people of God end up in Egypt, but they ended up in Egypt because of a need, because they couldn't eat, because there was no food. And this famine that apparently the world around them experienced was only to be alleviated in Egypt. And they ended up there in a place of honor, as a matter of fact. Why? Because of their equal who had been favored. Right? Foreshadowing that took place 
we couldn't understand it, or they couldn't understand it, they understood it later. But not only did they become saved in Egypt from hunger, they actually became rather rich and rather influential. They did quite well for themselves. They did so well for themselves, in fact, that they became slaves. Now this is getting interesting, isn't it now? How were they so influential that they became slaves? Let's take us through this. This group of people are suffering. They go into a new place, a new location, where they are being given salvation from this experience of pain. But more than just being thankful, they end up taking advantage of their situation and they lose the source of that blessing, who's not the riches of Egypt, but God. God having saved them. And they draw away from God. So what happens when they lose God? They lose their communion with their source of sustenance, and they become slaves, and they're persecuted, right? But they're still doing quite well in Egypt. They have plenty of food. They still do rather well. However, they end up having to leave Egypt. And you all know that story where Moses leads them through the Red Sea and then through 40 years of wandering in the desert. We're going to come back to that. All of this isn't easy, brothers and sisters. First they leave their home, they end up in Egypt. Then Egypt becomes their home. It becomes their identity. It becomes their source of livelihood, rather good source of livelihood. And then it involves the tearing out from that source of good source of livelihood because they're no longer free. And they go to a new place, a new environment, understanding a new self. But before they even get to that new place, what happens? They have to shed the old self. They have to purge. That, my friends, takes lots of hard work. It's lots of trial and tribulation. That's what took place for the 40 years in the desert. So, we understand exile then, we understand exile then as an experience that is not desirable, an experience which we try to avoid. But in many cases, in many ways, it is a needful experience. And it is traumatic, it is cathartic, and it requires something, it requires something that we have not been asked for before. It requires something that we didn't have to offer before. 
more importantly than anything, brothers and sisters, it requires an emptying of the self. An emptying of the self. So this is what I had prepared for this first talk. And like I said, this one is the shorter one. The, uh, the next talk is called Journey. And we're going to spring from this idea of exile into the journey. But I do want you to have an opportunity to ask whatever questions you might have. And they can be about anything, really. Any, any questions or thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Fled. So um, the the process had some technical legalities to it. In 1951 or 52, I can't quite remember. The United Nations, newly formed United Nations, following the League of Nations that had existed before, <clears throat> had established an an article stating that whenever um, that f when refugees settle in a new location, the government from the previous country were forced to release their, their family for family reunification. In most cases, people from Romania uh, and other, when I say Romania, really you have to imagine other parts of the Eastern, Eastern Communist, Eastern European Communist block of nations, fled alone. Usually the, the, the husband, the father of the family, sometimes the mother, whoever had the opportunity. And the part of the country where I, where I lived, uh, Western Romania, they were most often either flee by trying to swim the Danube, which was an extremely difficult uh, river to cross. In fact, um, let me share, your, share with you a story. My dad was a priest. He still is a priest, retired now, but he was a priest in Vancouver, Canada for many years. And in that parish, there was a man, older man, who was, um, I think, just a few years older than my dad. But he was a very quiet man. He wouldn't talk much. He wouldn't participate much in activities, especially where there would be a lot of fellowship, but he was a steadfast worshiper, and he would go to confession regularly, and you know, eventually we got to learn a little bit about him. As a young man, he had worked as a border guard uh, on the border by the, by the Danube, and one of his jobs every Thursday morning was together with a group of, of a number of other soldiers, was to pick up the nets. Because there was a big hydroelectric power plant, huge, one of the largest in Europe, between Romania and uh, Serbia, on the Danube. So they had a net to catch all the, you know, trees and branches or whatever, before going into, into that s section. And every Thursday morning, they had to clean that out. And he said that in the 70s and 80s especially, 
There wasn't one Thursday when there wasn't at least two or three bodies of people who had, who had died trying to swim across. Mostly men, young men, sometimes women, sometimes even children. And in, in the mid-80s, apparently, in the mid-80s, right before he himself fled, um, <clears throat> um, he said that there'd be more than 10 people almost every week. And sometimes you could tell that they were an entire family. So extremely difficult, but many people did it. Then the other section was to kind of, there were some fields, open fields, but they were guarded and they tried to cross that way. And, um, you know, that was even more dangerous because you could get shot. <laughs> it, it was easier to see, right? But uh, some went that way. And then the others, if people were able to afford to pay off the guards, you would try to basically bribe a number of stops at the border patrol to try to pass through. So that's what my parents did. They bought blank passports, just blank. They were stolen, obviously, from the government passport offices, and they bought those, and they basically wrote them in by hand. <laughs> they put a picture on there, and then through connections and relationships, which, by God's grace, my parents were rather, my father was a rather prominent person. So he had a lot of connections that way and they just paid off people. And they had an exact time when they were supposed to go and pass through. And, and you just prayed that there wasn't somebody that was going to flag something and get caught. And then you'd, you'd be going to prison and take beatings and so on. So they did, they made it through. And then they ended up, they went to Germany first because we had some family there. And then they wanted to come to the U.S. right away because, like I said, my dad had first cousins here and they were willing to put up, uh, to put up the finances so, so we can be reunited and go to, come to the U.S. right away. However, imagine this, you go through all of that and then you end up in Germany. The United Nations grants you... Uh, political and religious refugee status right away. And then where do you want to go? Well, I want to go to the U.S. because I got family there. And the United States says, oh, you got to wait for a year and a half, and then you got to come to the U.S., and then you can bring your children after a period of time. Um, can you imagine the disappointment at that time? The dreams that were shattered? Um, so, but, so then my, my mom and dad basically said, no, we're going to go to whatever country is going to bring our children out first. And my dad didn't even know where the country of Sweden was. But um, former parishioners of his from Timisoara, Romania, heard that he was in the refugee camp in, in uh, Frankfurt and contacted the officials and said, we want to bring this priest to to Sweden. So they called them and thank God the country of Sweden had a wonderful government policy and really reunited families very rapidly, more rapidly than anybody, any other country. It, uh, seven months, really eight months, 
we were together, and that was unheard of. My, my wife's family, because uh, my wife is Romanian as well from Constanza, from the Black Sea, complete opposite end of the country. But they were separated for four years. Four years. Now sadly, my father-in-law ended up in the refugee camp in, in Istanbul, Turkey, which was not a picnic, my brothers and sisters. All of a sudden, he thought he was becoming free, and there you were beaten because you were a Christian. So that's how we were united. The United Nations had a specific program to reunite children with families, and we literally were in the custody of an official from Bucharest in, on the plane. We went to Vienna. Because I was 14 and I had four younger brothers. I was so scared to death. It's actually kind of a funny story. I, um, I, I was scared that I was going to lose my, my siblings. And it was, I mean, I stayed up at night for weeks. I couldn't sleep because I thought I was going to lose my, my little brothers and sisters. So um, what I did is I took a rope and I tied it around my own waist. And then I, I literally tied my younger brothers to me. <laughs> And we get to the airport in Vienna, and you know these are Austrians. You know they're free. They got all everything. You know there was I remember there was Coca Cola and oranges and bananas and all this stuff everywhere. And they had a special room for us with cartoons and all of that. And they, they, I get off the plane and here I am, a 14-year-old kid, and I was kind of short at the time. And I had my, my brother and my sister after me who were holding hands, and I was holding them by the coat, and the others were tied to me. <laughs> and they, they wanted to, and I wouldn't let them untie us. <laughs> and they were kind of wondering, what's wrong with this kid, you know? <laughs> but, um, of course, now I was so mad at them, you know, I was like... You know, I was really mad at them, but, of course, now I understand it. How were they to understand what, what we were going through, you know? So that's how we got there. Mm -hmm. Father James. Uh, could, uh, in the communist times, could priests counsel during confession? No, see. Or was confession compromised by the secret police who insisted that priests tell what that happened? That happened a great deal. That happened a great deal. Um, you know, Jeff, you'll have to tell me when to stop, because I'm not keeping track. We have about 40 minutes. Oh, well, we have plenty of time then. OK, good, good. Um, so yes, the church was also compromised, particularly with the hierarchs, particularly with the hierarchs. Honestly, my mom and dad, <laughs> say that they suffered because some of the bishops did not help more than anything. And yes, priests were also oftentimes expected to, to basically share information, share whatever, whatever they, they would have heard or they might have heard from people confessing to them. And, you know, many priests were accused of of being informants, and I'm, I know there were, many were, but by and large, whoever actually strove to become a priest in communist Romania or any other communist country, 
They didn't go there because they wanted to be informants. You'd have to be stupid to want to become a priest in Romania. Why? My dad was not a priest. He didn't go to seminary, to seminary right away. He was actually an economist when he was done with the army, which he did a little extra because he decided to, he decided to jump literally the fence to go and take an examination exam, an, uh, an admission examination for university. And the date was before he was to be done with his army. Because uh, everybody, there was, everybody went to, all men went to the army for a year and four months, I think, something like that. I can't remember. Catalinium. Okay. So he, he jumped the fence and he went, took the exam. When he came back, at the end of the day, of course, they figured it out. And he had to do a week in the, you know, jail, which he didn't care about. But uh, then he had to do an extra six months. And he was, uh, he had to guard, uh, he had to guard the trains. But, so, and then my dad actually went, he was an economist, he was actually had a very good job as an economist, but my grandfather, before he died, when my father was a teenager, so I never met my grandfather. On my dad's side, I didn't meet either one. Like I said, they were very rich, and um, the government took all the lands, and his grandfather, his father, my grandfather, said to, to my dad and to his younger brother, never serve this government. If you can go to your cousins in Chicago or Seattle, where the family was, go. If you can't go, the only person you're allowed to serve is God. You can't serve it. This is my death statement to you, you can only serve God. My dad said that that's the, really the only reason that he became faithful. Because he knew what kind of challenging life his father had enticed him to go to. So he became a priest a little later, and after doing well, <laughs> he didn't need to become a priest. So, it, uh, and there were many others like that. Whoever did choose to become a priest was because they, they wanted to serve God and God's people. But yes, there was infiltrations. I can see how priests would have maybe shared one little thing just to kind of appease situations. Um, my father had a lot of people. He was in the city of Timisoara, which was the last major city before the border. A lot of people fled that way because the easiest way to flee the country was through that direction. You know, you could go to Hungary, but you wouldn't go very far. You could go to the Soviet Union, into Ukraine, it'd be worse. You could go to Bulgaria, same, same deal. If you could, uh, you know, get on a raft and make it across the Black Sea into Turkey, you would get into, uh, into the refugee camp in Istanbul, but the Black Sea is not a big lake. You, you wouldn't make it, you'd die, you know. Um, so my, f my father, as well as other priests there, they heard of a lot of families who were getting ready to flee, getting ready to leave. And um, frankly, because, because of that, 
when they got to the refugee camp in Frankfurt, these families from Sweden said, look, this country reunites families right away. That's how it happened. Now, confession. Most confessions did not take place in the, in the church because people were afraid to go to church for confession. They would come to the priest's house, but oftentimes they would meet for some other reason. And then they would ask the priest just to hear their confession in a room or in a corner by the side. But there were many people who were afraid to go to confession because they were afraid that they would be turned over. You see? So there was a lot of that. And can you imagine the, the stress and the tension that would have existed? How, how difficult? When people love God, they love the church, they would seek to have the blessing of the priesthood, and yet they're afraid because they don't know if they can trust the priest. You see what that mentality of the oppression of communism did? It basically sought to destroy the most intimate trust that people had. The vehicle of God's grace in the world was destroyed, right? The, the work of the church was being undermined subversively. A friend of mine who was in St. Petersburg was once on a, on a travel car and talked to this old babushka mm -hmm. uh, next to she, she gave him the cold shoulder, but they finally sort of broke the ice. And they talked, and uh, this old lady sat down the and she said, uh, that's what communism did to us. It made us distrust each other. Mm -hmm. We don't talk to strangers. Who are you? Police? You know, secret police? Who are you? Yeah. Uh, and so... Sometimes, even in the family, even in the family, when, when my parents, before they actually fled, you know, my dad especially sat down with me, and keep in mind, I'm 14, I'm not even his age yet, okay, and they left me money, and thank God we, we had money, we can't say that, we, but he left me very clear instructions. On Wednesday at 5 o'clock, you go to this address, you walk through this back door, nobody's going to be there, you're going to find a bag on a table, you leave 25 lei, and in that you will find a little bit of salami, so meats. Then on Tuesday at 1, you got to go to this address where you will find somebody who will give you a bag with two bottles of milk. Now, on the one hand, it kind of feels like, hey, it's an adventure, right? And that's how I felt when my dad was telling me about all this, and there were stacks of cash, because, you know, you didn't put it in the bank. I'm almighty. I'm all-powerful. But then there was something else that was the responsibility as well. 
every Tuesday and every Friday of every week. At 8 a.m., they would open what they called the passport office. And there would be lines of people waiting, begging to be allowed to leave, to be reunited with their families. And I got there, you know, a little bit before 8, the first couple of times, and I noticed that there were not just tens, but hundreds of people sometimes in line. And they would only work for two, three hours, and then they would leave. You never got to see them. And people would kind of grumble and protest, but they wouldn't really protest for real because they'd be punished and beaten. So after the second or third time, I just kind of, I prayed and I made a promise that I was going to be the first one there. So at 3.30 in the morning, I got on my bike, and I went and I sat on the curb right by the door. And they saw me there for seven months, every, every Tuesday and Friday on the curb. And I was first, every single time. So, and then you, you know, at first it's kind of cool because you've got money and you go and you enter the one where I picked up the meats on Wednesdays at five. <clears throat> it was a really big, beautiful mansion of a type of house, right? It was clearly a government official that was probably friends with my dad. You know, government officials, they were often accused of being securitate, you know, the secret police. But even many of them, they just did whatever they kind of could best to do well for their families. But this guy was clearly some kind of high up person. Never saw the person. I still don't know what that person looks like. I heard the name when I finally, but I still don't know what that, that family looks like. But you walk into that room and you leave the money and you do that, you know, two, three, four times. And same with the milk and then with the bread. With the bread it was easier because we had friends in a village where they, they had flour, so anyhow. But it gets, it gets to you real quick. <laughs> it's no longer an adventure when you realize I could get caught, and this could stop, and there could be no food, because there was nothing in the stores. Catalin, you remember going to the stores, and it says bakery, and there's nothing on the shelves, especially in the mid-80s. It was that bad. So um, anyhow, other questions? Are there? Yes, Father. Talk a little bit about uh, Father George Calchu as, as one who preached and was thrown in prison. Yeah. So Father George Calchu was a, really a rather monumental figure in, um, in, well, for Orthodox Christians in general, but for Romanian Orthodoxy in particular. He was not alone. This happened to a lot of people. They got put in prison. My, my, like I said, my own grandfather, rather anonymous person, was, was with Father Roman Braga at the canal for two years, working up to your waist in terrible, dirty water, digging something, you know. Um, but um, anyhow, so Father George Calchu was a rather prophetic voice. He was a priest in the capital city, and he, he, had, 
he had been one of those priests that preached and spoke and taught. And at first, you know, it, it wasn't so bad early on. It wasn't so bad. It got worse progressively, especially in the 70s. In the 70s, it got re started going really bad, especially around 70. My dad says that he started feeling it more around 77. That's what, uh, and then in, into the 80s, it got terrible. But um, Father George Calcio spoke against uh, the, the communists, and uh, thank God he ended up being uh, able to leave and ended up in the United States where he lived out the rest of his life in uh, the D.C. area. Um, I never got to meet him, unfortunately, in person. My father's met him, and uh, surprisingly, he, uh, my, my wife's family in, in Canada got to meet him, and he spent time in their home, and they got to be, they got to, to have a relationship, of, uh, a wonderful friendship. Um, he, was, um, he was a very dynamic, very powerful priest. Okay, that, that I, like I said, I've never met him in person, but some of you have already read about him and know about him. But think of it as, think of it as a very strong bully, a very tough bully coming into a group. And this bully, is known to be very strong and very mean. It doesn't matter that there are 10 people. Almost all 10 will be so scared that they will not be able to rally themselves together to withstand the actions of the bully. And you see the tactics of intimidation and the conniving meanness of the bully are so refined that the group almost reinforces their own fear by observing the fear of the other. By the work of the Spirit, every once in a while, one of the weak people, you see those air quotes, right? One of the people in the group of those who are afraid will feel a spark of courage. And then that courage actually starts to feed itself. Because all of a sudden you've noticed that the courage is not of you, but of God. And then you see how that little spark of courage actually feeds and alleviates, feeds the soul of the afraid and alleviates the fear of the afraid. So then you do more because your own courage your your own courage has been nurtured. And then you trust that with all of this eventually the bully is usurped. That's essentially what the prominent dissidents tried to do. That's what they did. Was it Elder Kleopa generally left in peace because he was way up in the mountains herding sheep? 
<laughs> no, he was not left in peace. Oh, I should say, he was left in peace when he, when he was in the mountains herding sheep because he was a kid. <laughs> um, but no, as, as, the, uh, as the elder of one of the more prominent monasteries in, in Romania, historically, um, he, uh, he was not left in peace, I wouldn't say that, but they couldn't attack him so visibly because he was well known. But they attacked him verbally in many ways, and he suffered a great deal too. But we also have to consider something different. The elder Cleopa was a saint who walked on earth. And my, my father was a, was a strong dissident. He spent a number of times a lot of pain at that. But the whole country recognized the elder Cleopa, who didn't even have to protest. And he was weakening the bully. The elder Cleopa was my father's confessor. We would go to his cell a couple of times a year. And uh, of course, I'd be climbing the trees outside of the cell. And, yeah, and uh, dad would go in for, for confession and whatnot. And um, he, he was a luminous man. I, I, have, I have recollections even now. He would, I mean, there would be people just waiting in a line, you know, to see him. And, the, you know, the monks that were taking care of things, they would allow priests to get, to get ahead, uh, uh, to get ahead of the line so they can go for confessions and whatnot. But there were lines of people coming to see him and to just receive their blessing. And, you know, can you imagine me coming up here and, telling you what, you know, what your problem is and you what your problem is and you and, and just telling it to you in such a way that you're already starting to heal. A different level, a different level. And one time, um, apparently, and I remember this vaguely, but my parents remember it more, more clearly. We were at his uh, monastery there and my dad went in, and my mom was outside with us little kids, and I was the worst of all. And I climbed up in a plum tree that was right outside of a cell, and just, you know, I was a kid. I couldn't sit, right? So I was climbing the tree, and my dad comes down, my comes out, and he sees me, and of course, you know, get down from there. So then the elder kind of said to my dad, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? What's he doing? He's doing what he's supposed to do. And from then on, my dad never scolded me again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I just got worse after that, unfortunately. I needed more shepherding. <laughs> um, Elder Cleopas is a holy, holy man. Yeah, we were there this summer. Oh. Ma'am, you had your hand up. I 
so this was for the trip from Romania, from Bucharest to, um, to Sweden. So we took a flight from Bucharest to Vienna, and in Vienna I wouldn't let them go. And then in Copenhagen, um, in Denmark, Copenhagen, Denmark, there was the other flight, and over there um, in, um, in Copenhagen, we were supposed to get on a, that's when I actually kind of relaxed a little bit, but um, I still had them tied to me, and uh, we, um, we were supposed to get on a helicopter right away to go, so my parents were in Lund, outside of Malmö, Sweden, just like a really very close, uh, very close to, uh, to Denmark. Um, so it would have been a short helicopter ride that uh, we were on. Well, <laughs> it was actually really scary because, you know, I knew a little bit of French, a little bit of English, a little bit of German, but uh, I, I was scared, you know. And what happened was there was some kind of a political turmoil and they had to fly some uh, politicians into Mauna, and the, the, the helicopter we were supposed to get on didn't come right away. And we had to wait there for like five or six hours after two long flights, you know, and with these, a two-year-old and a six-year-old tied to me, <laughs> go to the bathroom and I wouldn't let them go and so on. So over there when we had to wait for, for a good four or five hours, and I, like I said, I knew a little bit of, the, of these foreign languages, but not enough to really grasp what was happening. And my parents were worried sick. You know, this is prior to the, you know, now I could just text, hey, we're gonna hang out here for five years. That wasn't the case. So that's when I actually kind of said, whew, a little bit. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, we got to, we got into Sweden and we were, together. Yes? My mom's mom, our grandmother, came to stay with us. She was an elderly woman and uh, different aunts and uncles would come by to help every once in a while but in hiding because they themselves had families and they themselves experienced you know this type of persecution. Did your parents tell you they were no, no, they, so I had instructions, this was planned, this was planned for, this was planned, this was well planned in advance, and we had a code, Christ in us, in the end, the King of Glory, um, when my dad would, was to say that over a phone conversation, I was to, to respond always, now and forever, and to the ages of ages, amen. And that was the code that he confirmed that indeed they have found a place, they're not coming back, and we will have to, I will have to begin that process of, you know, yeah. So this was very well planned. Mom and Dad had everything lined up. You know, a lot of it happened by bribes in communism. It did. It did. That's, and they had people bribed everywhere for, for us to, to get everything done. And, yeah. But it was very hard on our family. It was very hard on our on grandmother. And she was very, she was 
She was an older, not so healthy woman herself. So, anyhow. Yes, Father. I've heard people make, draw comparisons between uh, America today and communism. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a different topic altogether. But um, so, first off, I want you to not be afraid. Don't think of it as examining or addressing fears that you have. We do live in a good country. We live in a great country, in fact. I refuse to say the best country in the world because there's no such thing as the best. <laughs> the best country in the world is the kingdom of heaven. Every other country in the world is only number two at best. So we live in a great country. And one of the greatest things about this country is that a mindfulness of the people being at work has been developed. There's a sense of freedom from government in our country. There's a sense of independence from the government in our country. And this is quite different if you look at it anthropologically compared to other nations where they have come into freedom out of being uh, basically monarchies in most cases. I'm, I'm generalizing a lot, but you understand there's not a separation of independence from the unit that governs us. Well, in this country, the mindfulness of the people, the awareness of the people, is that of not being dependent on the unit that governs us. In that respect, we as Americans do have a great gift. We do have a great gift. However, however, it seems that that is being eroded somewhat. Some of the tendencies that we see in our country today are to appeal less to the community's mindfulness to correcting and emboldening itself towards better and appealing more to a mandated good. To a mandated good. See what you did? <laughs> now I gotta say something. <laughs> At first thought, what is wrong with a mandated good, right? Right? I mean, think about it. If I tell you, hey, help that person because she needs help. If I tell you to do that and you listen to me, I have mandated you to do a good thing. 
and you have done a good thing, and your neighbor has been helped and has been really brought out of a difficult situation, right? Good has happened. But what else has happened there? What else? Control. I have imposed, I have imposed good into your life. It doesn't even matter that it did you good. What really matters deep down in your heart is that I have taken away your freedom. And when we take away people's freedom, do you know what we actually take away? The image and likeness of God. The image and likeness of God is best defined, you know, theologians, we not me, but theologians try to explain it in beautiful ways. Really, quite simply, the image and likeness of God in man and woman is the fact that we can think like God. He, he made us to be able to think like Him. So then if I really want to help her, I will sit down with her and through love and patience and striving, I give birth to a sense of want to do good even through her own sacrifice. And this takes us to this other concept. When good is mandated, what happens? We do the bare minimum. When good is planted as a seed and it is nurtured to grow in the heart of man, man will die for it. But you can't do that without God, people. <laughs> you know, you can be a good person without being a Christian. You, you don't need to come here. You don't need to waste your Saturday listening to me. There are plenty of people who can speak better than me. And you don't need to give your 10% to the church. Why would you do that? Are you stupid? Seriously. Why would you want to come here and listen to him? I mean, look at him. Seriously. <laughs> no, you don't, need, you don't need to be a Christian to be a good person. You can go to your local soup kitchen. You can do that. And you don't have to come and spend two hours here every Sunday. You can do that. And you're a good person. But we're not building good people, my friends. We are building godly people. You are here because you're not just merely trying to be good. You're, you're trying to be better than good. You're trying to be like God. This was the introduction. The reason why this is why we try to, what we try to do in Christianity is because in the world what we're seeing today, and especially in North America, both United States and Canada, uh, Western Europe is a little bit ahead of us already. 
They're trying to build a good which is void of God. And they're trying to build a good which is arbitrary. Because you see, if we, if we don't have a standard that is outside James and outside of Timothy, then we'll have to create a standard. And the standard that we create is going to be a negotiation. And the standard that we have created is arbitrary. Because if I were to work with him, the standard would be different because we're different people. And then if the three of us work together, the standard will be different yet again. But the standard will not become a goal anymore. It'll simply become the common denominator, which is what? The lowest common denominator. And worse yet, the very good that we have agreed upon will have to change because he is not like him and he is not like him. Because people change and we're all different. As often as we try to set a standard outside of the one unchanging standard, we end up off target because the target is always moving. Because the target is always going to be moving. The standard will always be moving. The standard will always be arbitrary. So now that I've said that, Tell me, please, what's the word? <laughs> I'm going to Greekize you now. What's the word for sin in the New Testament? Amartia. What does that mean? And I know you all know it, so that's why I'm making fun of this process. Off the mark. Brothers and sisters, this country, at its founding, honored God. They recognized that even if they didn't quite understand God, and none of us do, they honored Him as a standard standing above whatever standard that they could come up as a group of people. And this country now is being forced to let go of that standard and to create its own. That's the essence of the struggle today, in my opinion. And I'm just one guy, and I don't even know that much. So, and I mean that seriously. I don't claim to know that much. But this is what's troubling for me. This is what's troubling for me. And you know, even in Romania, it started off with taking away little freedoms. And then it got to, you know what? Where you have all the electricity only a few hours a day. And it got to the point where you had hot water only a couple of hours a day. And on certain days. <laughs> Correct. In other words, what do you have to do when the standard is 
moving, when the standard is outside of God, and you have a leadership unit that has to enforce that standard, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to control the subjects more and more, rather than appealing to their freedom to associate themselves. The contrast is that people in the image and likeness of God are free, and in their freedom, they choose the seed of good that they see someone offer. And they let that seed of good be nurtured, watered, grown, pruned in their heart, and they themselves become the manifested good coming from God in the world. I got a little long. Sorry, Father. I hope it was satisfactory. Can say more about it, please? No, I don't, because I'm getting worked up. Let's have another question. <laughs> I don't like him anymore. <laughs> okay. Oh, really? I still have some. Yeah. So unfortunately, I, um, I have to share some other news about this. Um, indeed, Sweden and all of the Scandinavian countries have changed dramatically. When I was there in the 80s, as a 15-year-old, my parents ended up in Sweden, like I said. My dad didn't even know exactly where it was on the map, right? He didn't, never paid attention to that country because <clears throat> he didn't need to, and the target was the US or Canada. But, um, but um, we got to Sweden, they got to Sweden, and they were treated very well. The government had really amazing policies for refugees amazing policies. They treated them really, really well. And like I said, we were reunited in seven or eight months. This was unheard of almost. <clears throat> and uh, they, um, and when my, when they came out of the refugee camp, when we got there out of the refugee camp and we were settled into a, into a town, now, the government had great policies, and there were many good people. But I have to inform you that the Swedish people were not so welcoming to the immigrants. They had a very common word for us. It was called Svartskale, the black skulls, because we did not have blonde hair. At one point, believe it or not, I had curly black hair. 
Um, but they, were, they did not treat us well. The people, many of the people, unfortunately, were not welcoming. And there were very few university spots given to youth who were not born in Sweden. When I got there and I was going into high school, my parents wanted me to go into, so over there you had to go into an academically designed high school in order to go into, quite common across the countries of Europe. And they would not allow me to go into the academic high school. They did not allow us to. When we got there, my dad, oh, another thing, you couldn't, even though the country, the federal government accepted you, you couldn't just go and settle anywhere you wanted. Here in the US, when my dad got here, he went and reported, declared himself, everything. He had to stay you know, in isolation for a period of time, and um, I think a week or so. Then they did all the background checks, whatever. They, they said, here's your social, here's your permit. It was temporary at first. Here's your permit. You can go anywhere in this country. You can work, do whatever you want. When we got there, after they were, it, they were done in the refugee camp, you had to apply to, a, to different cities or towns to be allowed to move into their city. And the only reason my dad was allowed to go into the city of Lund is because there was an Orthodox community, primarily Romanians, some Serbs, some Greeks, some Arabs, some Africans, Ethiopian, Eritreans, uh, and Egyptians, Orthodox, both Eastern and, and Oriental, and there was no church, no Orthodox church at all. The closest church was in Malmö, because Lund is about 20 miles outside of Malmö. It's a small city. And the people from there somehow found out that in the, in the camp, which was in northern Sweden, way up north, and um, like it's even colder than Minnesota, that far north. <laughs> they found out that there's a, there's a priest, there's an Orthodox priest in the camp, so they immediately petitioned and they, they together as a community said, went to the city council and begged them, let another immigrant family come in here because this guy's a priest and we need a priest. And that's how they got there. So it wasn't so welcoming. And I, I'll never forget it. We went on our first vacation there after we got there and it was, you know, we were so excited. We had been together a few months. We went on a vacation and there was no GPS or anything like that. <laughs> and we kind of got lost and we ended up in a, in a town, some kind of village town. We went from door to door asking for directions to the particular resort. Nobody would talk to us, just even to give us directions. So it was, it was very heartbreaking. And then when, when this thing happened at school and they wouldn't allow me to go into the academic high school, that's when my, uh, my mom and dad kind of went home and had a good cry and they said, 
We didn't leave our homeland so that our children can be second-class citizens. My dad came to the U.S. and uh, then we, we ended up in Canada just because there was a parish there that needed a priest. And so it's, uh, it, was a, it was a good move. More strife, more change, more exile, more of that. But it was a fruitful thing. So, but yes, I've heard, I, have a, I still have a cousin that lives in Norway and lots of friends in Sweden. And it's on the flip side of that, like I said, the government had good programs and good welcoming. And when my dad got to that city, Lund, he had to establish a church, right? A community. There was nothing. So he went to the he went to the local Lutheran bishop who received him wonderfully. He said that <laughs> Are you recording this? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say it then. <laughs> he was better than any Orthodox bishop he ever had. <laughs> it's a joke, obviously, but the Lutheran bishop of, of Lund was very welcoming, and he said, I am so happier here because I know there's these Orthodox people in our city, and they probably go to visit our churches, but we can see it's not enough for them. We were happier here to start a church for them. And uh, so my dad just kind of said, oh, because you, you, need, you needed permission. Even though it was an Orthodox church, you needed permission from the Lutheran bishop to start the Orthodox church because it was a state church, you see. And they, the bishop said right away, absolutely. So he asked him, where are you going to do services? He goes, I don't know. I'll do it in my house. You know what this bishop did? He said, sent a secretary of his, the secretary came back with a list. He said, here's addresses of four churches. Go visit them all. You pick whichever one you want. It's yours. And, uh, and my dad literally fell on his knees and then cried. I'm not kidding about that. I'm not kidding about that. I mean, to end up... And keep in mind, he, he, didn't, have, he didn't have vestments. He had a cross, a blessing cross, that he put in one, one Bible. Not even a Bible, it was just a New Testament. We didn't have a Bible. I would read the epistle over there from a small New Testament, like this big, and then I would walk over to give it to him so he can read the Gospel in the liturgy. And somebody had a tape, uh, an audio tape of the liturgy, and we copied we listen, write it down, and that's how we learn to sing it. There were some people who knew, you know, from, but still, you know, there was no Matins and Akathist, and we didn't have those books. We didn't have that. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the really genuine story. And everybody, all the, all the Orthodox were all in one. And interestingly, after we moved to to North America, the priest that succeeded my dad was a Swedish-born priest who had gone to Germany for a PhD in theology, and there he met some Greeks. And he noticed that these Greeks were praying kind of weird, and he became Orthodox in Germany, and then he asked to come to his home country. And he was, he was a priest there for 20 years, I think in that community. Anyhow, thank you. Thank you, Father Tim.